The idea of taking a real historical figure and making him or her the subject of an opera isn't at all new. In fact, it inspired some of the greatest works in the 19th century repertoire. Think of Verdi's Don Carlos or Mussorgsky's Boris Godunov. But it's taken on a new lease of life in recent times, and this is in a large part due to the extraordinary success in opera of the American composer John Adams. Well, you could argue that some of the spade work had already been done by Andrew Lloyd Webber in his hit musical Evita, which appeared in the mid-1970s. But still, the premiere and subsequent growth in popularity of Adams's opera Nixon in China was a turning point. The first performance was in 1987, and it rejuvenated the idea of opera as engagé, that is, involved with truly contemporary issues. Most of the audience at that 1987 premiere would have remembered President Richard Nixon's epoch-making visit to China a couple of decades earlier. This marked the beginning of a breakdown of the old political barriers, the first sign that the Cold War might possibly not be a permanent standoff. Yet at the same time, Nixon in China created something else pretty startling. The idea that a modern opera could be modern and yet also speak to a wide audience, even contain hits like Nixon's Hymn to the Power of the Modern Media, News as a Kind of Mystery. News. So there we have a recognisable modern character acknowledging the role of the media in consecrating modern events and at the same time turning politicians and their deeds into icons, all accompanied by throbbing, pulsating sounds that sound almost like the kind of up-tempo introduction to a contemporary newscast. So Adams is throwing down quite a gauntlet to his fellow composers. Adams carried on creating sensations on the opera stage, with, for instance, the acutely controversial opera The Death of Klinghoffer, which, some argued, made a case for terrorism. And then more recently, with the opera Dr. Atomic, composed in 2005, which is about the physicist Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb, as he's known. It draws on personal recollections, recorded interviews, government documents, and even technical writings on nuclear physics, which surely is a challenge to any composer's powers of word-setting. Adams's operas also have a habit of throwing out satellite works. Take the wonderful orchestral piece The Chairman Dances, which is related to, but doesn't actually draw on the music of, Nixon and China. Then, in 2007, Adams produced his Doctor Atomic Symphony. This does draw on music from the opera, including one of the opera's chief lyrical moments, you might call it an operatic number in the old conventional sense. At the end of Act One, Oppenheimer sings words from one of the holy sonnets of John Donne, an invocation to the three-personed God, which recalls the fact that the first test of the atomic bomb was codenamed Trinity. 
Setting it here, Adams transforms the big theme of the opera, Atomic Explosion, into a kind of violent, mystical experience. Batter my heart, three-personed God, that I may rise and stand, or throw me and bend your force to break, blow, break, blow, break, blow, burn and make me new. In the symphony, those words are sung by a solo trumpet. So a key lyrical moment from the opera becomes a key lyrical moment in the symphony. But the use of material from the opera, Dr. Atomic, is rarely straight in the Dr. Atomic symphony. Adams does take music from the opera, but more to the point, he takes some of the leading conceptual ideas from the drama and represents them in terms of a musical symphonic argument. Originally, the Dr. Atomic Symphony was in four movements, lasting about three quarters of an hour. But in 2008, Adams seems to have realised that more concision was needed, or, as Schoenberg put it, that concentration is expansion, which is a rather nice comment in relation to a work about nuclear physics. So now, the Dr. Atomic Symphony is in three movements, and with a highly unusual layout. There's a big central movement, entitled Panic, framed by two much shorter movements, the Laboratory and Trinity. The Laboratory begins with something like a big explosion. We have a powerful dissonance that releases plenty of energy. Almost immediately we can sense the effect of different speeds in different sections of the orchestra. We hear a bang, a kind of musical equivalent of the rising column of the cloud and of the moment when it all mushrooms out. But at the same time, there's something else here, a kind of counting, the pounding, measured timpani notes at the start, almost like the countdown to an explosion, or perhaps it's like the methodical scientific mind, counting, observing in a detached, arithmetical way, yet decidedly not counting the human cost. <laughs> some fairly literal explosion effects there, not least the use of the thunder sheet and the wonderfully eruptive sound of gong strokes. But gradually comes the moment when it all, well, sort of stabilises. Crucial in this is the low bass note, a C. The original throbbing, pulsing, 
counting solidifies in the bass instruments around that note, while muted trumpets and trombones make the rudimentary first attempts at some kind of chant line. I mentioned the absence of any sense of the human cost of the explosion. Oppenheimer, the leading scientist in this first atomic explosion, said later that he was reminded of words from the Hindu Bhagavad Gita, the words of Vishnu, Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. In this muted, barely sung response from the brass, do we begin to register something of the human consequence? Some slightly more hopeful echoes there in the falling phrases on oboes and horns, or is that more a lamenting, keening sound? In any case, it doesn't last long. If the phrases on the muted brass and the oboes represent the immediate after-effect of a gigantic explosion, the stunned, half-articulate chant soon gives way to something else, a movement aptly entitled Panic. figures on strings, nervous jabs on brass, on the beat one moment, off the beat the next. And the idea of the keening chant now becomes slightly more vocal, slightly more melodic on the high woodwind. Perhaps in the background to the music we've heard so far, we have something of the survival of the old symphonic plan of slow introduction and fast main movement. Yet it also feels like one entirely continuous process. John Adams is a great admirer of Sibelius, especially Sibelius's Seventh Symphony, a completely seamless structure which is in a constant state of transformation. That's very much the case here. In fact, so much so that as the symphony progresses, if you try working out which movement you're in, you may well end up getting confused. I certainly did the first time I heard it. Perhaps I can give you at least a few helpful markers here. That virtuosic, terrified, scurrying string texture continues for quite a while. Then we have a stark, awe-inspiring chord on the brass sounding through the mad melee. More than a suggestion of alarm bells at the end there. But that chilling chord is not a dissonance, unlike the chord that sounded at the beginning of the first movement in the laboratory. In fact, it's a very simple consonance. It's a chord of G-sharp minor, 
Now that chord seems to go through a process of evolution. We start off with a pure chord of G-sharp minor, which gradually becomes more and more dissonant and less recognisable. In fact, it's rather like the thermodynamic process that physicists call entropy, the increasing introduction of disorder into a system. Gradually, elements begin to separate from this onward hectic rush. The first really striking one to do so is a solo trombone, which is instructed to play standing so that that sense of separation is enhanced. It's also marked crude coarse. Adams's habit of creating melodies from tiny cells, which circle around one note or a small tight cluster of notes, is continued more evenly at first by high muted brass, but gradually the evenness decays, it begins to break down, we have wilder, more scattered fragments, more entropy. So far, we've noticed the gradual emergence of chant-like themes, possibly representing a human element of, well, maybe protest or lamentation, but certainly standing out from the more scientific, counted-out element of the explosion and its aftermath. But these chant-like themes have so far been presented on woodwind and brass, not on the traditionally hyper-expressive romantic strings. We can certainly imagine some of these lines sung in the opera. In fact, it's easy to imagine words attached to them. But now, as the evolutionary entropy process continues, the violins and cellos take up the song. The human element becomes more distinct. For the first time in that passage, we have a slight slackening of the previously unstoppable onward rush of the rapid tempo. 
And it's interesting that it's the string's human lyricism that brings about this slight easing of the crazy forward momentum. We first sensed an element of duality in that brief, explosive first movement, the cold counting on one side, then the sense of the horror unleashed. This dualizing process continues as the panic second movement evolves. The forward rushing tempo, the irresistible drive, could be compared to a nuclear wind. But this gradually begins to die down, to lose some of its energy. And as it does so, the lamenting or possibly protesting human element grows in strength, not through massive assertion, but through eloquence. For example, we sense it growing in this initially questioning horn solo, which appears through shimmering string tremolos. A little earlier we heard that crude, coarse, slightly hyperactive trombone solo. The trombone now returns in this new, seemingly calmer landscape. But again, the trombone stands forward. It's marked exaggerated, wild, and it reminds me of a manic street preacher warning desperately of the apocalypse to come. Gradually, the energy flags. The dust has all fallen. There's one last furious animato. And then comes a solemn stillness. We are now in the finale, the movement marked Trinity, and soon we hear the trumpet singing John Donne's words.
Does this represent religious consolation? That strikes me as a little too simple for a work like this. Oppenheimer's mind clearly did wrestle with notions of God, but also with a sense of the devastating power that humans now possessed. The end of the symphony certainly offers no kind of answer or consolation. The ticking, pulsing, counting noises rise clamorously to a dark chord of D minor. Gradually, this collapses back onto its own bass note. and it forms a striking ending to a fascinating work. The appeal of the Dr. Atomic Symphony on one level is very visceral, it's physically gripping, yet it also has the power to make one think about the themes in the opera, but also about the physical and human processes released by the nuclear explosion. It's almost as though Adams has given us a kind of metaphor in music of the way the human brain tries to process things. The brain, as neurologists tell us, is composed of two hemispheres, the logical, scientific left brain and the metaphor, meaning, emotion-centred right brain. In a way, we can sense in Adams's music how both of these try in their separate ways to make sense of it all and perhaps ultimately fail. Well, it is extraordinary, isn't it, that a piece of purely orchestral music can seem to convey so much. And I must stress seem here. You may think I'm reading far too much into this music. But I don't think John Adams would object to our interpreting his music in ways like this, at least not in broad terms. And in the end, it really is a tribute to his power as a composer. That his music, even without words or stage actions, in the purely orchestral symphonic form, can not just provoke powerful feelings, but stir us to think about profound and complicated philosophical issues too.